Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got an incredible and intimate interview with Brian Garrett, the co-founder of Crosscut Ventures, a top VC fund here in LA where he's been investing in startups for over 10 years. Brian dives in deep with us to share his story from a family tragedy that happened at age 13 to a recent healing experience that helped him break through the barriers that have been holding him back. We all have our own barriers and stories that we tell ourselves that create challenges in our personal and professional lives. And today, Brian talks about why being vulnerable is so important, what kind of characteristics he looks for in founders to invest in, how he thinks about the founder-investor relationship, and why he now believes in the statement, let the game come to you. As always, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review or send any burning business questions you may have to stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. I'm going to be answering some of those questions on some of my upcoming episodes, so please feel free to reach out to get your questions answered. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story. Let's start, I guess, from where are you from? Born and raised here locally, uh, Pacific Palisades, California. Born in 1973, so I'm 45 years old. And uh, one of two in the family, older brother, about two and a half years older than me. And he and I were uh, very close growing up, did a lot of stuff together, caused a lot of trouble, (laughs) uh, and ran all over the Palisades, playing sports and surfing down on the local beaches. Cool. So tell me about what was it like as a kid? Were you playing sports? Yeah, I was pretty athletic, sort of tagging along with my older brother. My older brother is six foot nine and uh, ended up being a pretty top college basketball recruit. Hmm. I mean, we grew up as a basketball family, just every season, every club team, every free night, we were down at Pally High playing pickup games. And so I was very fortunate to grow up with his set of friends who toughened me up and um, sort of accelerated my my skill development. So, and had a lot of mentors in the Palisades at the time, sort of the fathers of basketball in the Palisades, like uh, Steve Kerr taught me how to shoot, and and so just a lot of exposure as a young kid to all forms of sports. I played everything. I played football. I played baseball. I surfed. I was a junior lifeguard and I was just always outside. So that was sort of my upbringing nice. all the way through uh, through high school. Awesome. Yeah. And so you went to college. Yeah. I, um, I was a, I, in the same vein as my brother, I shifted from basketball to volleyball with seriousness, probably in eighth grade. Mm. And I had a life event that was pretty transformational for me. My father passed when I was 13 years old Mm. and my brother was already being heavily recruited and it was pretty clear he was going to get a scholarship to play basketball. And I, um, I think looking back at it now, it was part of my coping mechanism. It was part of my 
strategy for handling the tragedy, I Mm -hmm. put my kind of head down and said, well, I'm going to get a scholarship to Stanford too. And that was in eighth grade. Wow. I made that commitment. Um, So I had a pretty unique high school life in that I was uh, fairly driven, but not a lot of oversight from my mom. Mm -hmm. She very much went to a place of hey, I'm going to let you grow up and figure stuff out. And uh, she was also trying to figure stuff out for herself at that time. And my brother was off to college. So it was sort of, I grew up very fast. And the way I sort of tried to manage that tragedy was by saying, okay, I'm just going to put my head down and I'm going to achieve. And so I was fortunate to end up with a club volleyball coach who was an ex-Green Beret from Vietnam and had been rumored to kill a hundred people with his bare hands and oh was just gosh. a scary human being. <laughs> he took eight of us under his wing and sort of mentored us all the way from eighth grade to 12th grade. And we played year round, we played in all the tournaments. And so we were one of the elite teams in the country, which made my path to getting a scholarship a lot easier Wow! Um, back in that time. So in eighth grade, you were like, I'm going to get a scholarship. And then you ended up getting one. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I was so focused on the task. I applied early to Stanford. They offered me the scholarship. I remember, actually, this would be the anniversary. I'm not smart enough to know the math, but I signed my letter of intent on Halloween back in my senior year of high school. So I knew where I was going in October of my senior year and was just a big relief, obviously. And I had a very fun senior year the rest of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So Stanford, was that a school that you always had in mind from the beginning or? It it was, uh, no. My dad went to UCLA. My mom went to UC Davis. It wasn't Mm -hmm. something that was in the family. Mm -hmm. I think my brother laid the path. And uh, I went up there on a visit to see him when he was a freshman and had a really fun time. And I was like, this is a cool place. And (laughs) why would I not want to go here? And I knew all of his friends that were playing on the volleyball team. So I kind of knew what Mm -hmm. volleyball at Stanford meant. Mm -hmm. And I just picked it as my goal. I was like, good school, good volleyball. That's it. Yeah. That was it. Not much more thinking than that. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So did you have any internships or first kind of jobs? No, my mom inherited my dad's travel agency or, well, they, they sort of co-ran a travel agency. Mm -hmm. My my dad actually has an interesting background. He was, uh, was raised by two alcoholic parents in East LA, actually Laverne, and then self-selected to put himself into a foster care. Wow. And graduated high school at age 16, had a scholarship to go to Laverne College, turned it down because he had always wanted to go to UCLA and then ended up working his way through college to pay for it and having to live in a group home as a a ward of the court in downtown LA. And he took public transportation to UCLA every day. So very much an entrepreneurial driven spirit that, you know, sort of built a life for himself that he arguably had no right to have. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he became pretty entrepreneurial early on in uh, real estate and real estate development. And he didn't have any money. So he was raising money from people and buying properties and managing them and flipping them. It was before wow. like REITs existed. So I had that template, but my high school career was volleyball. Mm-hmm. Every summer, every minute I was traveling and playing with junior national teams and doing stuff. So my only work experience was actually, uh, once I learned to drive, my mom allowed me to deliver tickets. This is back when you had printed airline tickets. Yeah. I was her delivery boy and I drove all over LA, became a fantastic parallel parker and was able to stop and drop off the tickets for people before digital you know, came about. And so that was my one job going into college, but I really had no work experience. I had no I was, you know, a lifeguard at a pool kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you graduate Stanford. 
And what did you want to be when you grew up at that time? Well, same thing. Again, there wasn't a lot of thinking going into this stuff. I got to Stanford. I was focused on volleyball. A friend of mine, a year older, said, hey, Brian, you should study industrial engineering instead of econ. Um, There was no business degree at Stanford at this time. Mm -hmm. There still may not be. And so he was like, it's the whole engineering core. You're going to have to do chemistry and physics and then, you know, civil engineering and hardcore stuff, Mm -hmm. but you'll be much better prepared for a job and the degree will be a lot more meaningful. I had to do computer science too, things that I had no background in. So I said yes, and I did it. Ended up being a good decision. (laughs) <laughs> way harder than the econ degree. E- econ was like 40 units. Industrial engineering was 110. Wow. So uh, I got my butt kicked. I mean, I was <laughs> playing volleyball, which is a kind of a full-time job in right. college. I was trying to have a social life and I was way in over my head on a lot of this curriculum, but managed to get through it. And still, again, really had no work experience at that point. Now, I think I did one summer internship with Shiat Day, three blocks from here at the old binocular buildings. Oh, interesting. That was like my one job. And then really my luck post-college was the fact that I had to do a senior project that was uh, consulting for Adobe on supply chain optimization. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we won first prize, myself and three of my buddies. And so when I went to interview for jobs, and that was another kind of critical decision point for me is at that time when you finished playing volleyball, you either went to the national team to play six-man indoor or you tried to make it on the pro beach volleyball tour. Hmm. And I did not grow up playing beach volleyball. So a lot of people were saying, well, you should go. And I'm like, but I don't know how to play beach. (laughs) And so this idea that I would, it would, would have been a really fun lifestyle, but it would have been making no money bartending and, and just having a couple years of fun basically. Mm -hmm. And I decided that was not for me. And I said, you know, I've got a Stanford degree and Silicon Valley is kind of popping right now. Let's see if I can get a job there. So that was literally it. I did a couple interviews where I was able to say, oh, yes, I know how to speak consultant speak. I optimize supply chain for Adobe. (laughs) Buzzwords everywhere. (laughs) Oh, dropped them left and right. And and I got my first job out of college was with a McKinsey Bain knockoff called uh, R.B. Weber and Company. Mm -hmm. And it was a guy named Jeff Weber that was one of the early founders of Sybase. And um, he had kind of this, you know, incredible network in Silicon Valley of executives from first generation technology companies starting the next thing during the first bubble, 1995. Mm. Um, And so I was one of 40 people at this small consulting firm and we did uh, business plan writing, market entry strategy, pricing studies, product market fit assessments, Mm. everything you can imagine. Um, And it was where I first sort of cut my teeth on strategy and strategic thinking and business models and management styles. And Mm. so I did that for about four years living in San Francisco, commuting down the peninsula. It's where I met my now wife, like a really fun time in San Francisco during that first bubble. And I, the way I just described it is like so many projects, so many interesting things to learn mm-hmm. at the height of the craziness. Yeah. Right. That's it was insane. a really great experience. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you spent four years there and then what happened next? I was sort of burnt out. So uh-huh. I had a quarter life crisis, as I describe it. I took a leave of absence from my job. I packed up my surfboards and I went to Costa Rica surfing. What, what created that, that uh, crisis? Uh, it was a lot of immaturity in where I was in my life, what I wanted in my life. Was I ready to commit long-term to a relationship? Mm. Didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up and just burn out. 
mm-hmm. just working 80, 100 hour weeks, cranking projects left and right, and yeah. just tired. Yeah. Right? So, so I did that. And then I left RB Weber. I applied to business school. I had this weird, fortuitous circumstance where my wife, Elisa, got in to UCLA, but I got a deferral at Stanford. So I got a year off, basically. Mm. And so I moved down here, lived in Manhattan Beach, surfed, played volleyball, golfed a lot, and consulted on some small projects to make some money. And I just traveled as much as I could. Mm -hmm. Any free minute I had, Lisa and I would take off and travel around the world together. That's awesome. Um, And then I started business school the year after. And so we had a year apart. And then she graduated, moved up to the Bay Area for my second year. And I was living in South San Francisco, commuting down. Mm -hmm. And then she got laid off from her first dot-com job. Mm. I finished my MBA. The bubble had burst and we both were unemployed and really had nothing to tie us to Silicon Valley. So we made a lifestyle decision to move back to LA and start our lives together. That's awesome. So lifestyle choice, because the beach, the weather, just... Yeah, it seems so simple now, but you know, at the time I was sort of tired of kind of that, the culture of that first bubble up in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and the conversations about how much equity you had and what your options were in. Yeah. And I, I knew that we had had fun with the nightlife and the restaurants, but when you ask someone to marry you and you think about starting a family, yeah. I was kind of saying like, do I want to be in San Francisco doing this? Mm-hmm. Or I know I'm not going to be going out late. Right. I probably want to be near the beach watching the sunset, having, you know, being able to surf in the morning, yeah. playing volleyball on the weekends. And she had her UCLA connections down here. I had my family and high school connections down here. It was a pretty yeah, easy decision for us to make. Yeah. So that was 2001. We moved back here. Awesome. On a commitment for LA and uh, a no job at the time, but an orientation around doing something in technology and ideally venture um, yeah. at that time. Cool. And that's how I met Rick Smith. How did you meet Rick? So he was working at a firm here in LA called Palomar Ventures. Actually, it's funnier than that. I went to my professor at Stanford and I said, uh, I want to do venture down in Southern California. And after he stopped laughing and said, there is no venture in Southern California, (laughs) he was nice enough to make three introductions on my behalf to three firms, Enterprise Partners, Mission Ventures, and uh, Redpoint and Palomar. So four firms. And um, nobody was hiring except uh, Palomar happened to have a situation where their first associate was on the way out. Hmm. And so same thing. I wasn't, he just looked at my resume and said, oh, you're a college athlete and captain of your team. So you must have some, some skill set. and you have a two degrees from Stanford. So you, you must be roughly smart enough to do this work. And so they hired me on a two year and out philosophy of come in, learn the business work your butt off and then we'll kick you out the door because you, nobody makes partner and you know, venture funds coming out of business school. Yeah. That was the philosophy at least. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you met Rick there yeah. and then how did Crosscut come about? Uh, so about five years into it, they didn't kick me out the door. They actually made me a partner. I had, I think just sourced some deals and used my Stanford network at a time where the fund needed to put some money to work and have some winners. And so these deals kind of worked out. Mm-hmm. So, and that's how venture works. If you make money for the partnership, they have no choice but to keep you around. Otherwise it's very easy to say, no, there's not enough of the pie here to split with you. Mm-hmm. We need, we need all the pie for ourselves. Yeah. So I just kept same framework, just uh, worked harder than anyone else intellectual curiosity, read diligently, went deep into categories, came away with ideas, concepts, businesses that we pursued. Mm -hmm. But Rick and I were basically stuck in a partnership that was focused on enterprise IT Mm -hmm. in a market that didn't have any enterprise IT. And so um, we were 
hunting around Los Angeles and fortunate to be in the flow of deals like Jamdad and Overture and Shopzilla and BizRate and uh, Lower My Bills and most importantly, MySpace, but we couldn't get any of those deals done because the mandate of the fund was infrastructure software. Mm -hmm. So that frustration led to the genesis of CrossCut, which was Rick, myself, and most importantly, Brett Brewer, who was my next door neighbor in the Palisades. And I watched him firsthand scale Intermix and MySpace to a big exit. Yeah, We were sitting around looking at this emerging ecosystem in LA and the number of repeat entrepreneurs that were starting to pop up from their exits mm. and realized there was no local source of, of venture dollars to help catalyze it. Right. And so there was no more genius than saying, I think there's a white space here. I think <laughs> somebody needs to step up and build a fund that is branded specifically to help accelerate these businesses here in LA. Yeah. And so I think the only thing we really did is you know, sort of saw it and went after it before anybody else. That's the one thing we did here at CrossCut is we started this project in early 07 and conceptualized how we were going to build CrossCut and ended up raising the first fund in August of 08. So way before any other funds had popped up here in this market to aggressively pursue only LA deals. That's awesome. Yeah. So you guys had to fundraise for your fund. <laughs> I feel like a lot of founders don't really realize that also, that investors also have to fundraise. <laughs> so there's definitely some challenges and failures there. Can you maybe share a story of, you know, one of the biggest challenges or failures you experienced in your fundraising process? Sure. There's hundreds. So how I pick one, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think when I think about the first fund, it was this idea that Rick and I had track record and reputation in this town. We'd been very present in LA. Mm -hmm. Brett was an iconic, you know, big exit. And so I think we thought we'd go raise a hundred million bucks right. with relative ease. Yeah. And in fact, I, you know, my wife was pregnant with my third boy <laughs> and was having some nesting issues. And so we were in a rental at that time and she's like, we, you know, I need a home. And so we bought a house on the premise that everything was going to be fine. Yeah. And so then you fast forward a long failed attempt at raising institutional capital as the market started to crater mm. as we headed towards you know, the Lehman implosion in August or September of 2008. Oh, yeah. We had a very humbling realization that you know, 100 million wasn't even in the wow. remotely possible yeah. and ended up with a $5 million fund, which was basically 10 investors saying yes, average check size, you know, 250K. We had one super LP that did 3 million of the 5 million. Wow. Right. Yeah. So that's how humbling that first <laughs> one was. And it was, it was a, it was a very tough kind of come to Jesus moment for Brett, Rick and I on like, do we have conviction about this idea? And, right. you know, can we do a $5 million fund? Will it work? And how long will it last us? And, mm -hmm. and how do we survive in the interim? How do I, you know, I didn't have any savings. Mm -hmm. I needed to make money mm -hmm. to take care of my family. So we just had a lot of conviction about the idea and, you know, going back to the the framework of how I put my head down in eighth grade, yeah. I had the same framework. I was like, this has to work. I have no backup plan. Yeah. I will make crosscut work because I have to take care of my family. Yeah. And so that's kind of how we did it, but it required all sorts of sacrifices across the board. I, I had to go back into a full-time operating role. You know, my wife had to come up with alternative ways to make some money on behalf of the family. Like mm -hmm. we did whatever it took and yeah. we, we barely got by. Yeah. But I'm definitely a lot stronger on the other side of it now. Yeah. So, so the thesis of Crosscut, how yeah. has that kind of evolved over time? 
It really hasn't. I think that's the one thing we're probably most proud of is, you know, we started this with the idea that entrepreneurs and repeat entrepreneurs are the most important ingredient, but local sources of capital matter and mm -hmm. having people that are inclined to take risk behind local entrepreneurs and big scalable ideas mm -hmm. has really been the foundation of CrossCut since we started it. Yeah. And we've now hit our 10 year anniversary. So, you know, the funds have gotten bigger, but the core premise is be the the best seed to series A fund that this market has. And we work very hard in trying to make sure we deliver that product on behalf of our entrepreneurs and just staying on the cusp of what's innovative and what's new. And so there's definitely a lot more diversity now in this ecosystem, the types of companies being built. Mm -hmm. But our core job is to be smart enough about a particular category that we don't look foolish and we can have a thesis behind what we do, but we're really mm -hmm. just finding great teams that we think can scale and we'd give them that first initial chunk of money and then work really hard to help them define the milestones that will lead to series A capital. Yeah. And so we've been doing that for 10 years mm -hmm. and it's gone pretty well. Yeah. And it's been a pretty decent thesis and I'm probably most excited now at the 10 year mark on mm -hmm. the potential of this market, the quality of the entrepreneurs, the number of Silicon Valley transplants that are moving down here to yeah. their next deals. We're just seeing all the right signs about mm -hmm. a long-term sustainable ecosystem. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, LA has grown significantly even over just the past five years. It's <laughs> been pretty insane. So- You've seen hundreds, if not thousands of pitches and deals. What do you think, first tell me, like what is the best and worst pitch that you've ever seen and why? I've told this story before. I think I talked about it with um, Harry, but I can't get past the one where it was like all the porn you can consume on a box for like $100 a month. And it was this Italian entrepreneur wearing a lot of gold chains oh, talking about how he could bypass the cable platforms to deliver this to the home. I think Rick and I laughed the hardest at that one. I've had entrepreneurs come in and, uh, you know, claim they have letter of intents with large Silicon Valley, you know, giant companies like Cisco mm. and then not be able to produce the letter in digital form and produce it with a printed copy and a logo askew. So basically trying to fraud us. Oh my gosh. I've seen everything. I've seen everything along the way. Wow. Yeah, I, there's no one particular business that stands out as like the craziest idea. And I, our framework on this is like, look, who are we mm -hmm. to try to say that that business idea is stupid? That's just right. not, that's just not where we come from. Right. Um, right. I think there's a, a perception that VCs think they know it all mm -hmm. and sit in their glass buildings and kind of shatter the dreams of entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they do. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, they do. But I, I try to say all the time, like, we're just one opinion. There's a million opinions out there. And who's to say that our opinion has any meaning or any merit or any basis in fact? Yeah. We have to go off of pattern recognition. Yep. And we have to go off gut instincts and judgment about what we've seen work in the past mm -hmm. and what markets or areas of innovation are interesting to us in the way we are shepherds of our capital. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. There's thousands of funds and yeah. there's all sorts of backgrounds of people that would have them look at something in a very different way than I look at it. Yeah. So I really try to urge people like, do not take offense to this. Use right. the criticism as a way to sharpen your pitch or your angle but don't take offense to it because mm -hmm. we're no more qualified to do this than anyone else out there. Like we yeah. are, we are very lucky to have stumbled into this situation, Yeah. but we, we don't have any special training that makes us more qualified to do it than anyone else. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to the process of 
founders raising capital. I feel like, you know, a lot of new founders coming into this raising capital for the first time don't really understand the process of how long that takes. And they always hear, oh, it takes six months, eight months, whatever to raise around, but they're not really understanding that's off of like, you've got to have maybe like three or four coffees just to kind of feel out and build a relationship with the investor. And can you speak a little bit to that process? Sure. I think if you're a first time entrepreneur, it's going to take a while, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't really have any credibility to lean back on. Right. Again, our job is pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. So we look at the quality of the team and the backgrounds and domain expertise that they have that makes them qualified to identify this new problem. So if you are a first-time entrepreneur or you haven't been in that domain, you lose points right there in mm-hmm. essence, right? And so then you have to work even harder to validate with outside third-party validation that the pain you have identified is a real pain. Yeah. And so I just think the bar is a little higher for teams or on single entrepreneurs or teams that haven't done it before. Right. Because they haven't been through what we call the entrepreneur's journey and they haven't been beat up, you know, 15 times along the way or 1,500 times along yeah. the way. And so they don't necessarily inherently understand what they are signing up for. Mm-hmm. It looks really glamorous. And so, yes, of course, more kids coming out of school want to be entrepreneurs. Look at the way yeah. we have turned these, you know, entrepreneurs into megastars. Yep. So they look at that and they want to emulate it, but mm-hmm. I don't think they know the sacrifice that comes from it. I don't think they understand the, you know, emotional health issues that seem to be prevalent everywhere. I don't yep. think they understand how difficult it is and how few of them actually succeed. Exactly. Yeah. Let's dive in there because that really needs to be talked about. And everybody, you know, it's so easy for us to kind of say that, right. But what does that actually mean? Yeah. Well, I don't have any great answers on that one yet. I'm working on it. It's something that's sort of core to me. And I've shared with you the other night of some of the experiences that I've had recently that have really been helpful to me Mm -hmm. uh, as someone who's been in this industry now for 18 years and all the doubt and all the struggles that I face in bringing my own startup to scale crosscut. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea that this industry unfortunately is measured in dollars in and dollars out, yeah. at least VCs are measured on that dynamic. And yep. then, so that puts a pressure on us to identify opportunities where we can put a dollar to work and return five, ten, five thousand dollars $5,000. Right. That's, that's how this industry is measured. But nobody seems to be looking at the sacrifices that come from generating that return. Mm-hmm. And nobody really seems to look at social good, social impact, you know, long-term employment developed in unique jobs that are being created. They don't look at the leadership skills that are being developed, even if something fails. There's so much learning that comes from these endeavors. And I think as a community, at least in LA, we can do a much better job of, I'm not sure we can change the framework of how things are measured, Mm -hmm. but I certainly believe we can raise the the level of the dialogue around these topics and create a better framework of sharing and empathy and vulnerability around these journeys. Um, Because I think everything in life is a little easier to do when you don't feel so alone. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think the reason that's hard within entrepreneurship is that the culture is driven by ego and greed and a puffing of your chest Mm -hmm. and thinking that your validation or your success comes from that next round of financing at a particular valuation. Right. But we've seen many times that 
that doesn't really correlate to outcomes right. and it definitely doesn't correlate to happiness and emotional health. Right. Everybody's out there kind of talking about how great they are crushing it. Yes. Right. So how do you help founders be more vulnerable? Well, so I've been doing a lot of work on that myself and trying to engage in a way where I make it very clear that I don't want the normal, the perceived normal relationship between an entrepreneur and a VC. Which is what? The entrepreneur says they've got a great relationship, but it's really never wanting to give the true inside look on how they're suffering or what's not working. They right. want to convince their investor that everything's great. That they're winning yes. and that's what, yeah. And so they might say, oh, I've got a great candid relationship, but really the only truth they really tell is when they end up with executive coaches or with psychologists <laughs> talking about the reality of their life and what yeah. they're going through. Yep. And I want all of that. It's, it's why I love what I do. I, I would say that the, you know, the many things that I do as a venture capitalist, the, the mentorship and the emotional connection around the journey we have agreed to take together mm -hmm. is the most fulfilling part of what I do. Yeah. And so I only look for those types of relationships. I have to like the market. I have to like the management team, but I have to really connect with the entrepreneur to say like, hey, I'm I'm what ready to go to war with you on this. And I know what war means. War is not all pretty. Yeah. Even if you're quote winning. Right. There's a lot of ugliness to war no matter what. Yep. And I want to see all of it. Mm -hmm. And I can help you with all of it because I've been through it myself. Yeah. And that aspect of bringing companies to scale, to me, it's not about KPIs. It's not about metrics. It's about the growth of the individual and in their, in their rise to leadership, mm -hmm. you will put the frameworks that we now consider to be normal in this industry around that rise to leadership and you'll get the metrics you want. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But people seem to flip it around. It's sort of growth at all costs right. and it's, you know, manipulate whatever you need to manipulate to get to that next milestone mm -hmm. to attract the next round of financing. And I don't think you're fundamentally putting the right building blocks in place if you do it that way. Right. So we as a firm are really trying to draw that out in the way we engage with our entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. which is not something that gets out to the broader community, right? We have a very small portfolio relative to the entire ecosystem that mm -hmm. is available to us to invest in. Um, but we're working to come up with frameworks and ways that we can sort of spread that message more broadly and try to play a small role in pushing this type of agenda across at least the LA ecosystem. Yeah. What are like two to three characteristics of a founder that you look for and you say, oh, this person I think has what it takes to get through this? It's a, uh, Rick and I have used this phrase for a long time and I sometimes I get the quote wrong and I can't remember who it is, but it's um, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Hmm. It's that rare combination of like, I am going to take this mountain no matter what, mm -hmm. but I'm also not blind to the realities of what's happening. Hmm. And so I try to assess that in the time I spend before I get to an investment, mm -hmm. to an investment, yes, on does this individual have that combination where they can't just be pure dogmatic, uncoachable, I'm taking this, this is happening. There's mm -hmm. nothing can stop me because mm -hmm. there's a reality to the world that doesn't always support that. So that's one piece. 
I think a willingness to be open and to learn, like I don't resonate with the arrogant entrepreneur that thinks they have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I think we all have stuff to learn along the way. And mm -hmm. I've been using a lot more coaching frameworks with our entrepreneurs to help them understand that. And so they have to be open to that. Yeah. If they're not, it's a sign that they probably think they have all the answers. <laughs> right. It's not um, a good sign. So those are kind of the two main things that I look for and just a, a general a good heart, good human being, someone I enjoy spending time with. Yeah. You know, life's too short to, to work with a-holes. <laughs> exactly. It's pretty simple, simple <laughs> principle to live by. So tell me about the best deal that you've ever, or best, fastest moving closing deal or a time when you were like, wow, this person, when were you right about a founder and when were you wrong? The one I was wrong about is too raw to, to discuss at the moment. But um, I would say I go all the way back to the very first two entrepreneurs that we backed, Jason Nazar, mm -hmm. when he started DocStock, and Ophir Tans, who's CEO at Gum Gum here. Yep. Both very young, very raw, no domain expertise in what they were trying to do, but... Which is pretty crazy. I feel like yeah. you can't really get away with that today, right? No, it's a lot harder today. Yeah. I mean, it, it was sort of a statement of where LA was at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also had the luxury back then as probably one of the few funds that were really here and in town and active right after Lehman, right? Mm -hmm. So we, there wasn't a lot of money available. Mm -hmm. We had a chance to really get to know these guys. Yeah. And so it wasn't like a couple pitches and we're ready to go. I, I remember we spent six months with Ophir and Ari yeah. thinking about and contemplating the business and whether it made sense and how we could be helpful and all that stuff. Um, so we had a lot of time to kick the tires to get to know these individuals before we said yes. But there was something about both of them. There was a, a confidence behind what they were doing matched with a deep passion for what they wanted to build. Mm -hmm. And we joke all the time, like Jason was passionate about documents, sharing documents. Yeah. And I had no passion for documents, <laughs> but I had conviction about Jason mm -hmm. and so did Rick and so did Brett. So cool. those are the two that, you know, they've both went on Doc Stock sold to, to Intuit. Ophir's yeah. got a, you know, profitable hundred plus million dollar business here in LA. He's been a phenomenal entrepreneur. He's morphed the business over time from pure ad tech to computer vision and a bunch of new innovative solutions underneath it. So it's really fun to see that and fun to remember back to what they were yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. Right. That's see insane. how much they've matured and evolved as leaders. Yeah. So the leadership road is quite interesting. So you mentioned traveling and uh, a recent trip that you took. Yeah. Do you want to share any stories about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is um, this is something that Lee and I were talking about at our last event here last week. So Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest. <laughs> Giant beer, pretzels. Beers and brats. I, and I think pretzels. you shipped those in from Germany. They were so big. <laughs> they were the real thing. I broke my gluten fast that night for pretzels and beer. It was well worth it. And sausages. Yeah, it was well worth it. Yeah. So this kind of goes to that whole framework that we were talking about around coaching and the personal journey of the entrepreneur, I was really fortunate to get invited to a, a retreat out in Maui. And it was uh, hosted by a coaching platform, primarily based here in LA called Evolution Coaching. Mm -hmm. A guy named Jeff Graber and Matt Oren started it. And we've been working with them with some of our portfolio companies and seeing really good results from the entrepreneur's point of view of sort of like 
frameworks around 360 reviews and leadership styles and, and breaking down the walls that keep you from being the best you. So uh, they invited me to attend this conference and I wasn't really sure what I'd signed up for, but I was, you know, sitting at the 10 year anniversary of Crosscut and we're doing a lot of introspection as a firm on, you know, how do we, how do we build this firm for the next 10 years? What is, what does the next generation look like? How do we do our succession planning with younger talent? How do we mentor people into the business? So it seemed like the right place at the right time for me. And, uh, and so I went and um, I really had no idea what I'd signed up for, but as I was sharing the story, I just said it was one of the more transformational experiences I've had. And it actually goes all the way back to the, when we started this conversation today about my father's death. And I hadn't really quite pieced it all together, but a lot of the learning that I did from this, and I guess I'm sharing this because, you know, it's part of this realizing there was a such a humanizing experience with 15, 16 other entrepreneurs. We were all anonymous. Nobody knew anybody. We weren't allowed to use names. And we dropped into a yoga retreat in Maui where they forced us to do three-day digital detox and a silent retreat, no talking. Mm. So you're basically forced to meditate and journal 24-7, <laughs> which I had never done before. And yeah. it, was, um, it was very difficult for the first day and a half. And then it became really fantastic to get to a place where your your brain's quieting down a little bit and stops all the chatter that you know we're normally used to facing. Yeah. So yeah, so I did it and it, um the whole framework is around the hero's journey and the, and that monomythic framework of accept the call to adventure, go down into your deepest darkest caves and face the shadow sort of like Luke did with mm. uh with Yoda in the wherever he was facing his father. Mm. Same idea. Go down yeah. there and really get to the heart of the things that are kind of the stories that you tell to yourself whether they're true or not, mm-hmm. that shape your life, shape your behavior and shape your potential for achieving what you want to achieve or keep you from living in your essence and your joy. And, um, you know, I spent the summer pretty happy in a framework of like, okay, CrossCut's at its 10 year mm-hmm. mark and I'm proud of what we've built and I'm mm-hmm. proud of the partnership that I've built here with Rick and Brett and Clinton. And But there was, there's still something in me that, that I think in retrospection now, I think it served me well for the last 32 years to build this life of achievement, my head down, get the scholarship, head down, start crosscut, make it work. But I'm no, I'm not sure it serves me well for the next, you know, next half of my life. Hmm. So anyways, the way this framework was done is you go face those shadows. You kind Mm -hmm. of try to clarify what it is that is holding you back and then you do some I think it's called like somatic role playing with mm. people that can embody the energy of the thing that you're trying to break through or get past mm-hmm. and I just never knew that it could be so the word I keep using is healing for me I mean, I, I ended up having a conversation with my father back when I was 13 years old mm. and talking to him about the way I've lived my life and the lessons that his death taught me mm. And then I also had three people representing the energy of my three boys Mm. and I was talking to them. And again, I'm barely conscious through all this. It was so deeply emotional Mm. and how they got us there. I I can, yeah, it was crazy, but I was talking to my three boys about how I'm not going to die the way my Mm. dad died and I'm going to be there for them Mm. and I'm going to love them the right way. And then I finished all this. And again, all of this was around trying to figure out why I am the way that I am today. Mm -hmm. And then I'll explain that. But 
I finished the session in essence where the person that was embodying the energy of my father, he was kind of like, is there anything else I can do for you? And again, realize I'm a 45 year old man. My father passed when I was 13 years old. So I've had 32 years to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just, and I'm, I'm surrounded by eight people that I've gotten to know pretty well at this point, but I don't know who they are. Yeah. And for, for whatever reason, I just said, you know, my last time seeing my father was trying to resuscitate him doing CPR while we were watching Miami Vice. And then the very last time was his cold dead body on a metal table in the hospital. I was like, can I have a hug? Mm. And this guy embraced me and I just melted. I just sobbed uncontrollably for like 15 minutes and could not control my body. It was borderline convulsing. And so it was just a really powerful experience. And it's, and I share it only because I watched 15 other people share things that maybe aren't as tragic as my father's death, but they are equally powerful and limiting in the impact they had on that individual's life. Mm-hmm. Things like being bullied at age six that have affected their ability to connect with people in a deep way or never feeling like they belonged. Mm. And these are 40-something-year-old individuals yeah. breaking down those frameworks and realizing that it's limiting their ability to live in their joy and live in their essence and be their best self. Yeah. Right. And so for me to try to bring it all full circle, you know, I'm sitting in this fund, arguably should be very pleased and happy with everything we've accomplished, but I've been sitting with, and this is pointed out by my partners and by my wife, that I have this like steady state of agitation or stress or frustration Mm -hmm. that tends to put up a wall to making people want to approach and share and pitch me or do whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be in that steady state anymore. That was the realization, right? Mm. That like, I have everything I need. I've got three healthy boys. I've got a beautiful wife. Like I've got everything I need Mm -hmm. to live out the rest of my life. And in my attempt to keep accomplishing, I shut things out. I shut the emotions of life out because I didn't like to feel the pain that I felt when my dad died. Mm. I have limited that emotion and I have been sort of in a tunnel vision mode for 32 years. Mm -hmm. And it served me really well. It got me here, but I don't think it serves me or Crosscut or my family from this point forward. And I don't think I ever could have gotten there if I hadn't gone off to this thing in, in Maui. I don't think it was, it wasn't a framework I was looking at or trying to solve. I thought everything yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. And then you get there and <laughs> you're like, man, I am messed <laughs> up. A lot of the time yeah. we're like, oh, everything's great. Yeah. So I, I thought that, and then I finished that thing and I was like, man, I need, I need a lot of work and I got a lot of stuff to work on. So I share that in the spirit that I hope other people, you know, are willing to go there, yeah. go there, yeah. go there with me, go there with a the coach, go there with friends yeah. and try to figure out what's really holding you back. What stories in your past are mm-hmm. limiting you from accomplishing what you want to accomplish. Yeah. These limiting beliefs that you just mentioned, these are things that I try to talk about um, in interviews with other founders and just with other guests on the show. Cause I think it's so important to kind of talk about what those limiting beliefs were. How did you overcome them? How do you kind of grow in that way of like stairway to CEO, right? You're constantly challenged and having to overcome obstacles. And thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. My pleasure. <laughs> What's something that you wish you would have known before you started maybe investing or looking back, would you have done anything differently? 
I probably wouldn't have bought that house in the Palisades in uh, you know 2007, right before the collapse. <laughs> I thought you bought it. I thought you said you bought. I did. A house. Okay. I did, and I almost foreclosed on it four times along the way because I had no money and I couldn't pay the bills. You know, I, I I fell to the the needs of my wife in in raising our family and mm-hmm. bought a house at the height of the market. No, I joke. It, it all worked out fine, but I mean, there there was a phase in there. I would say like the years where. I was running Style Saint with Allison. Mm-hmm. I was commuting to the Arts District. I was running Crosscut with Rick and Brett and racing back to the West Side to take meetings and do partner meetings. And then I was trying to be a good dad. I was trying to be a good husband. I, again, if you just go back to that framework, head down tunnel yeah. vision, there was no stopping me, but at what price? And that's when my health deteriorated and I had a lot of problems right at the, I guess, tail end of raising fund three, the $75 million fund, I got really sick, but I didn't have a choice. I had to keep going. I was on the road. My, uh, it's a long story, but I had had an arrhythmia from kind of the stress. My Mm. heart was racing and I couldn't stop it from racing. And I sort of joke like the stress is what made my heart race. So I would drink coffee and alcohol to calm down the stress, but that only made the arrhythmia worse. Right. And so then I had a procedure to fix it. And unfortunately, them, they, for bad luck, they burned my vagal nerve, which oh, controls stomach function. And I lost 30 pounds in 30 days. Wow. But couldn't take any time off because I was trying to raise the $75 million fund and I needed to raise the fund to take care of my family. Oh my so you can imagine that yeah. vicious cycle and the conversation in your head, mm-hmm. which is like, I'm really sick, but I'll somehow get by on protein shakes and these like, you know, chunky beef jerky bars because I just needed protein in my (laughs) system and I couldn't get anything through my system. And that lasted about six months, right, right up until the end. And then the nerve regenerated, Um, in which they said it would, but they just didn't know how long it would take. And so that period was probably the roughest, roughest on my family, roughest on me. I think that's when my oldest son was convinced I was going to die like my dad died. So a really tough emotional time Mm -hmm. for us. And um, and, you know, I can look back on it now and smile about it, but I think looking back and no one should have to go through that. And, you know, I I don't wish that upon anyone. So what would you have done differently? Just taken a little slower or put your health first or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the the advice I got along the way and and I use it all the time is um, let the game come to you, right? Mm -hmm. It's this idea that, you can be as hard charging as you want to be and you think that's a great quality, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you can't force circumstances to your favor. Yeah, There are some things you can do to get a slight advantage, but really, you know, I, I came out of Palomar and started Crosscut and just fundamentally believed that we had done what we needed to do to deserve a fund. Mm-hmm. Even though we reinvented ourselves from enterprise IT investors to more media and ad tech and e-com investors, and it was a very different market climate. And then I just kept forcing things. I kept thinking like, this is going to happen. It's going to happen now. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when it all finally did come together is when I just relaxed. And it's not that my work effort stopped or slowed down. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't so balled up in the belief that my value in life came from these things happening in a time frame that mattered. Mm-hmm. You just got to let it flow. Yeah. And, um, 
And I really believe that. Like, like not everybody needs to be part of a startup that scales from zero to X in 18 months. Mm-hmm. There are many great businesses that are built over time and you yeah. just have to let what the market gives you you have to take advantage of it as it comes and yeah. just be smart. And so I, I use that advice for myself. I use it for my kids. I use it with my entrepreneurs. Yeah. You got to let the game come to you. Yeah, that's really important. I mean, I think a lot of founders, especially, you know, you're out there, you're raising money, you're getting all of these investors to buy into you, making the, you know, vision happen. And then there's just so many other circumstances that you can't really predict. Market changes, luck, there's so many other things. I mean, can you speak to some of those things that, you know, even the hardest working founder is still is out of their control? What are those components? All, all the time. I, that's a thing of this. That's why I made the comment before, like, I don't have any special training that makes me qualified to be a venture capitalist. It's just circumstances in my life brought me here. Mm-hmm. We make 30 bets. 15 of them are going to fail miserably. Does that mean those entrepreneurs are bad entrepreneurs? Right. No. No, right. Did they not, not work hard they, enough? <laughs> they all worked just as yeah. hard as the ones that succeeded. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's certainly, so how much of that is luck? How much of that is market timing? Mm-hmm. A lot of it, like yeah. more than 50% of it. Yeah. Because now the tools and frameworks for bringing scale are pretty much open source. Right. Right. Like right. everything is out there. There's so much content out there to consume, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're like, trying to live in a box and scale a business without paying attention, right. all of that stuff is available to you as an entrepreneur. Right. The question is, can you implement it and can you attract and retain talent? And then can you follow those frameworks in a way that catches the wave at the right time as the market develops? Yeah. And I wish there was some crystal ball that we could look at before every deal and say, oh yeah, yeah, that wave shaping up perfectly. We are exactly at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. I mean- we thought we were exactly at the right place at the right time when we started CrossCut in 2008. Yeah. And it took seven, eight years for the Southern California ecosystem to kind of get to where it is now 10 years later. Mm-hmm. We thought it would take three. Mm-hmm. So we were wrong, but we didn't quit and we kept persevering and it finally manifests itself in the way that we saw it back when we started CrossCut. Mm-hmm. Same thing with startups, right? Sometimes you're you're off and being off is as bad as being wrong completely mm-hmm. in terms of what happens with the business, but it doesn't mean you're a terrible human being or that you had a bad idea. It just means you didn't get it right. And hopefully you learn a ton of lessons from that failure that make you far more qualified to walk it into it the next time. Right. And we're always looking for that. So that's why we push so hard on this, like, Hey, you know, should be vulnerable with me. What, why did you fail the last go round and mm-hmm. what did you learn and how does that make you a better leader this time? Right. And how can we support you in your ongoing learning and journey here so that this one can have a different outcome? Yeah. Are there any resources or books that you want to share with entrepreneurs out there listening and, you know, maybe struggling with scaling or struggling with fundraising or whatever it might be? Is there anything specific? No, I don't have anything that's top of mind. Most of my reading over the last six months has been more personal journey than Mm -hmm. um, business frameworks and startup frameworks. Mm -hmm. You know, Nick Kim, our new head of platform is aggregating a great list of resources for all entrepreneurs that we work with or anyone in the community. I'm not sitting with any book right now that I would say, go read. Uh, You know, I spent most of my summer driving around in my old family minivan, looking at rivers and lakes and listening to uh, the power of now. Nice. from Eckhart Tolle and yeah. you know, a bunch of frameworks like that. So I'm, I'm working on 
presence, joy, state of mind, the ability to manage stress in situations as they come and yeah. separate myself from them and my reaction from them. Yeah. That's the kind of work that I've been doing. Well, that's all months. really important as well sure, <laughs> for founders. Absolutely, so yeah. in terms of that personal development, what kind of power of now is an amazing book. Is there anything else that you'd recommend? Uh, I've got a very long list and I'm happy to get it to you. Um, if sure. it's something your, your listeners would want to see most of my summer has been around Eckhart Tolle and, uh, a lot of Brene Braun mm-hmm. on um, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so stuff like that that's just really been helpful to me in thinking about, okay, like I've got this platform, we have this fund, we're, you know, we have presence here in this community, but how can I make myself and our partnership more attractive to entrepreneurs and wanting to work with us? Yeah. Right? How can I improve my own craft Yep. Um, from a personal level versus a uh, I've got a, a better book on how to scale from A to Z <laughs> right. and I'm going to try the softer side of things and see, yeah. see how that works. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I mean, that's part of a lot of motivation for me starting this podcast is to really talk about the human side of being a leader, being a founder, entrepreneur, investor, you know, all of these components. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing all this stuff. Do you have any last, you know, tips of advice you'd want to share for entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I think... You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs about their ideas, their visions, et cetera. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the one thing that I've seen, if you want to find the greatest correlation to success, it's honestly, it sounds so easy, but it's, it's honestly come at a problem or a space that you are deeply passionate about. Mm-hmm. Try not to do the hey, I've done all the research, there's a white space over here, I'm going to build this company because there's a white space over here. Mm -hmm. There have been many successes in doing that, but I do think that if we are all trying to focus on, I guess what I think are the things that matter now in life, which is, you know, deep connections with people, shared experiences, doing what we love, living in our joy, getting up every day excited to go build what we're building. Mm -hmm. You can't do that from there's a white space. I'm going to go do it. You have to do it from like, I deeply care about this problem and I want to solve it. I, I spent a lot of time with um, one of our CEOs, Hugh at Robin care, and he's built a cancer concierge platform for self-insured employers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he came there because of his own family cancer journey Mm -hmm. and not having this type of offering for his mom Wow! and said, I've got the background in healthcare and tech, and I want to build this offering so that my mom and everyone else that is suffering from cancer doesn't have to go through what my mom went through. Mm. And I can't tell you how things are just opening up for him when he Mm -hmm. truly comes from a place of like, this is very personal to me. Mm -hmm. And so it's really fun to be behind business like that. You take Amir and Raul at um, You Are Welcome, Mm -hmm. focused on on providing non-predatory financial service products to the emerging U.S. immigrant population. Um, Very personal to both of them, both of them having you know, come from immigrant families and, and acculturated here to the United States and built lives for themselves and they want to be able to provide better products and services to mm-hmm. that incoming group. Those are the types of businesses that I love and resonate towards Yeah, because they're truly driven by a problem that someone saw and a passion they have in solving it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So listen to that passion. Yeah, follow <laughs> it. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, really Lee. appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks 
Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing. Climbing.